within two short days. So uh, I'm glad you're back. We had a good lunch. I had a bit of a break, walked around, let my dog out, and we're back for more. And we're going to have fun this afternoon. When we finish here, I mean, when he finishes with his presentation, we will take time for some questions. If not all of you want to stay for that, that's fine. But the ones that do, I will, or Bill or I or somebody, uh, Tim will take a mic around and you can ask a question. Yes? Yes. Yes, P PhD. <laughs> okay. And uh, so we'll get a chance to ask Roland some, some, some questions. So without any further ado, Roland, come up. I'll pray for you and, and uh, we'll launch you on your way. Lord Jesus, thank you for what you've given us so far today. We give you these next uh, minutes that you will teach us again using your servant, Roland. I ask for clarity of thought for him and uh, the ability to communicate well and for us the ability to listen and stay awake and apply what we're learning to our own lives and the life of our church. Again, we thank you. We give you this time. In the name of your Son, amen. I'd like to start this afternoon by uh, reviewing some of the Reformation principles that uh, we should take away with us. Let's see. Uh, before we do uh, a summary of those principles, I'd like to uh, read to you from this important uh, publication that Luther did in 1923 to clarify the purpose of authority on governmental authority. We must divide the children of Adam and all mankind into two classes, the first belonging to the kingdom of God, the other to the kingdom of the world. Those who belong to the kingdom of God are all the true believers who are in Christ and under Christ. Now, observe, these people need no temporal law or sword. If all the world would be composed of real Christians, there would be no need for or benefit from prince, king, lord, sword, or law they would serve no purpose. Since Christians have in their heart the Holy Spirit, who both teaches and makes them to do injustice to no one, to love everyone, and to suffer injustice and even death, willingly and cheerfully at the hands of anyone, where there is nothing but the unadulterated doing of right and bearing of wrong, there is no need for any suit, litigation, court, judge, penalty, law, 
sword. For this reason, it is impossible that the temporal sword or law should find any work among Christians, since they do of their own accord much more than the laws and teachings can demand. Just as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 9, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the unjust. All who are not Christians belong to the kingdom of the world and are under there are few true believers and still fewer that live a truly Christian life. For this reason, God has provided for them a different government, the state. If anyone attempted to rule the world by the gospel, and to abolish all temporal law and sword on the plea that all are baptized and Christian, pray tell me, friend, what would he be doing? He would be losing the ropes and of the savage wild beasts and letting them bite and mangle everyone. And I would have the proof on my body. Christians are few and far between. For the wicked always outnumber the good. How far does temporal authority extend? Only to temporal affairs. Would you not judge the person insane who committed them, who commanded the moon to shine whenever he wanted it to? Yet your emperor and clever princes are doing just that today. They are allowing pope, bishops, and sophists to lead them on, one blind man leading the other, to command their subjects to believe, without God's word, whatever they please. How he believes or disbelieves is a matter for the conscience of each individual. But you say, Paul said in Romans 13 verse 1 that every soul should be subject to the governing authority. And Peter says that we should be subject to every human authority. 1 Peter 2 Verse 13, Paul cannot possibly be speaking of obedience where there is no corresponding authority. Temporal obedience and authority, you see, apply, apply only to externally, external affairs, to taxes, to revenue, to honor, to respect. Christ himself made this distinction when he said in Matthew 11, Render unto Caesar 
the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You must know that from the beginning of the world, a wise prince is a mighty rare bird, and upright princes even rarer. They are generally the biggest fools and the worst scoundrels on earth. He's not talking about our politicians. What about heresy, you say? Heresy can never be restrained, restrained by force. Here, God's word must do the fighting. It does not, if it does not succeed, certainly the temporal power will not succeed either. Even if it were to drench the whole, drench the whole world in blood. Heresy is a spiritual matter which you cannot hack to pieces with iron or burn with fire. But you might say, there certainly must be authority among Christians. Answer, among Christians there shall and there can be no authority. Rather, all are subject to one another. As Paul says in Romans 12, what kind of authority can there be where all are equal and have the same right, the same power, procession, and honor, and where no one desires to be the other's superior? each the other's subordinate. Where there are such people, one could not establish authority even if he wanted to, since in the nature of things it is impossible to have superiors where no one is able or willing to be a superior. Where there are no such people, there are no Christians either. What then are the priests and bishops? Answer. Their government is not a matter of authority or power, but a service and an office, for they are neither better nor higher than other Christians are. Their ruling is nothing but rather the inculcating of God's word. Now, to the essential principles of uh, the Reformation. Uh, Scripture is the only rule of faith. There are no other authorities. There is no pope. There is no general conference president. There are no priests. There are no creeds. 
nor fundamental beliefs. There is scripture alone. Two scriptures are consciences are captive. The second principle, or a second principle, is salvation through faith. We trust in the promise of God to cleanse us from our sins. That is faith. For Luther, it is an experience. It is not a system of beliefs, fundamental beliefs, or whatever you may count them, call them. It is not a creed. There is only, there is only one source, and that is scripture. There is no balancing of accounts. There is no salvation through your own accomplishments, which is impossible if you believe scripture. There is the universal priesthood of all believers. As we've just read, all believers are equal. There is no difference in the kingdom of Christ between all humans, no matter what nationality, no matter what race, no matter what gender they are. We are all equal before God. And that should be implemented in the church. And then there is no other mediator. There is no pope. There is no bishop. The Roman tradition uh, was building on a pagan tradition. The papal title, Pontifex Maximus, means what? The chief bridge builder. What bridge? The bridge that, uh, that bridges the gap between man and God. The Pontifex Maximus was one of the highest office in the pagan Roman state. Julius Caesar, for a while, was the Pontifex Maximus, as a matter of fact, all his life. Well, except his youth, was the Pontifex Maximus. He was responsible for the exercise of all religions in the Roman Empire. Uh, all the cults coexisted in Rome, um, and he was their high priest. He was the mediator between the interests of Roman society and the Roman state and the deities. And that principle of the Pontifex Maximus was taken over in Constantine the Great and then taken over by the papacy. The Bible says there is no other mediator than the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that is Protestant doctrine. Well, the implications 
of what we said here uh, for church are, I list a number of them, liberty of conscience. Uh, not just uh, liberty or uh, religious liberty, we have a department, uh, other churches do too, representing churches at the government um, to assure the religious liberty principle in the United States. But liberty of conscience is more than just liberty of religion. It applies not to a church. It applies to the individual. And that principle should be applied within the church as well to be believable. Uh, another implication for the church is that there, because all are equal, the same authority rests in each individual member of the church, of the body of Christ. There shall be no hierarchy in the church. As, as Luther says plainly, church administrative positions are merely offices. They are services. They are not endowed with authority except the authority of every Christian, which is to preach the gospel, teach the word. It means democracy in church administration. Democracy not from the top down, but from the bottom up. Because a church body, a church council, a general conference is merely representing all the individual members. And uh, implication of these principles also includes, implies uh, the active participation of all members. If you are all priests, you all have responsibilities. And each member is to serve the other in his own best capacity. Uh, implications for the state and society as well. And uh, one of them, as Luther uh, clearly points out in several of his documents the separation in concept and in reality between the church and the state. Um, it implies uh, for society liberty, equality, and brotherhood. It's interesting that uh, when the French Revolution occurred, which was largely secular, they too adopted those principles. Liberté, égalité, and fraternité. Those are Christian principles. And of course, 
it implies democracy. Now, there's always a problem, and there's a, a problem in political science and in government, is to balance liberty and equality. Some people define liberty rather broadly, where it invades the rights or impinges the rights of other people. And the job of government as a result is to keep a balance. It's constantly in flux. And that's why we have laws to balance the two. So neither side, neither principle will suffer. Uh, other implications uh, for society and for culture. Uh, one that was heavily impacted by the uh, Reformation was the educational system in Europe, especially, of course, in Protestant countries. Luther and the other reformers adopted the principles of education uh, of the Christian humanists. They were trained in the Christian humanist tradition, including Martin Luther and his closest associates, like Philip Melanchthon. So they applied these principles to education, aspiring to offer the young generation a liberal, a broadly-based education. Of course, literacy was important, so you could read the scripture. Uh, but then they concentrated on languages and on literature that went with languages, like classical Latin and Greek. And in some parts of Germany, you still see this tradition in their so-called gymnasiums, their somewhat better version than ours of high schools, because they are really demanding. Uh, education in the sciences, education in the arts, in literature, um, in religion. And religion, religious instruction, was an integral part of those schools. I've been raised and educated in a Christian community. And I went to public school where the, Proust, the Protestant, the Lutheran pastor offered religious instruction. The Catholic pastor offered religion, religious instruction. The Adventist pastor offered religious instruction, and so on, where there were enough students to warrant such a, a development. Other, uh, we could talk more about education and get into detail, but other aspects uh, that changed or impacted were marriage and family. And here, Luther himself gave a personal example. He was a matchmaker after the beginning of the Reformation when monasteries were dissolved, when nuns left the monasteries or the convents 
and there really was no place for them in society but to become a prostitute, perhaps. And so he was a matchmaker, finding suitable husbands for them. There was one, the nun, Katarina von Bora, a member of the aristocracy, who wasn't interested in anyone. Uh, when he got uh, a little angry and asked her what she wanted, and she pointed in his direction. He married her, and by doing so, set an example for others to follow. It was a happy marriage. Not perfect, but happy. She was a good wife, a good mother, motherly toward her husband. She cared well for him, perhaps too well. If you look at uh, images uh, of Luther before his marriage and after he got married, he kind of filled out a little bit. She was a good cook, uh, a good manager of the economics of the family. Uh, so, by his example, he elevated the role, the dignity of the family, and with it, the dignity of sexual intercourse within marriage. Before, it had been looked askance, and of course, the priests who were celibate, that is, without women, without wife, without intercourse, because it was believed the sexual intercourse, as the Romans, the antiquity believed, was uh, disabling the sacramental functions of the priests. Now, this was a God-given gift, given in the beginning, when Adam and Eve were created and the first family uh, existed. The role of women was impacted. And not only by elevating marriage, as we mentioned, but, uh, but for finding new roles for women in society. In his address to the nobility of the Christian nation, of the German nation, Luther argued, among other things, that in every town there ought to be girls' schools. Girls, too, should have a decent education. And then he applied that again to marriage and family. Women were the ones who had the keys to the future generations. They were the first teachers of the young generation. They needed to be equipped for their teaching they were more fundamental than teachers in the schools. So they needed an education. And the Lutheran Church soon found other places for women, especially single women. For instance, the community I grew up in uh, had a, um, a deaconess. Now, she was not just a deaconess at 
that uh, helped uh, collect uh, donations or open the doors and, and other services uh, during the worship service. But she was a paid deaconess. She had an active role in the life of the community, not just within the church. She was an assistant to the pastor. And uh, I remember I am in part a product of Sister Bertha. Uh, she coached my mother during pregnancy. She was a trained midwife, by the way. Professionalism for women. She assisted in my birth. She counseled my mother when I was a little child about upbringing, proper upbringing of children. She was my first kindergarten teacher. It was a Lutheran kindergarten. And I remember some of the songs that she taught, taught us. She was a highly respected member of the community. Where the pastor had no access, she had access. There are some roles that pastors cannot properly perform, effectively perform. You need a woman. She enjoyed tremendous prestige and respect in my community, so much as a personal testimony. Impacting the arts. Uh, Luther loved the arts. He participated in them. Uh, he endorsed the great artists of the Renaissance, most of whom in the Holy Roman Empire, where he lived, became Protestants. Names like Hans Holbein, the younger, the elder, some of them saved, served in, in royal courts in other places in Europe. Um, Lukas Kranach, who had his workshop in Wittenberg, Great art. This was the Renaissance now in the north. Albrecht Dürer. Now some of you may have heard his name. And I'm sure that all of you at some point have seen one of his works, which is the praying hands of his mother. You will find it in many pastoral studies in many churches, Protestant and Catholic. Luther loved poetry. He was a poet himself. He wrote many poems. But above all, Luther loved music. Oftentimes, actually typically, after his lectures, he would come home and a whole bunch of students would accompany him. His wife was a good hostess. And she served them lunch or supper. 
and they sat around the table asking him questions about this or that. It's all collected in Luther's table talks. Interesting source uh, about what Luther thought about virtually anything. And they would discuss uh, uh, all kinds of things, and eventually Luther would get up and said, that's enough talk. And he goes to the corner to retrieve his lute, a forerunner of the guitar, and would strum the strings and said, let's sing. And they would sing, sing it around and sing. And I have a couple of his statements about about singing. With all the heart, I would praise and laud this beautiful and artistic gift of God, the free art of music, for I find that the same has much and great usefulness, and is therefore a splendid and noble art, so that I, not, I know not where to begin or end to praise it. And uh, this or nothing on earth has more power to make the sorrowful glad, the honest sad, the despondent stout-hearted, to bring the haughty to humility and to diminish envy and hatred than music. Music Contrary to writing, appeals to the other side of your brain. It is incredibly powerful. Okay, before I abandon music, let me go back here again. Um, yeah, I uh, should mention the Lutheran tradition of chorales, the Lutheran chorale uh, and the Lutheran hymn. Luther composed many of them himself. He wrote music and he wrote the text to go with it. In some cases he borrowed music that already existed and baptized it into the Christian church. And of course a mighty fortress is an example of that. Luther, as far as I know, wrote some 32 hymns himself. Others followed his example. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the, my favorite ones is uh, that by uh, Paul Spiratus. Paul Spiratus had been a priest and a theologian. He uh, came on over to the Reformation he was accused of heresy, was arrested, was condemned to death. While he was in prison, he wrote, Salvation unto us has come of grace and God's sheer mercy. It is a, a hymn that has 14 stanzas not three or four like ours mostly are. And it is a compendium. It's a summary of the basic principles of Reformation thought. Um, salvation by works, uh, by, by, by faith. For what is the role, it asks, of, faith, of, of, of works? 
And he explains it all, like Luther had, in poetry. These hymns were memorized in the home by the young generation. All of the stanzas were memorized, as indeed were parts of scripture. You carried them with you wherever you were. If you were uh, working in your workshop, you would hum these hymns and entertain you in this way. And because they were memorized, the combination of the tune and the music would stay with you for as long as you lived. I know of cases where people had strayed strayed from Christ, had gotten lost in the world, and at some occasion where they were particularly receptive, they would hear some elements of a tune they they had learned as a child. And the words would come back to their memory. And they would have a conversion experience. That is a tradition that we sadly neglect at our own peril and at the cost of the future generation. One of the hymns that Luther himself wrote depicts his own struggles. Uh, I'd like to read part of it. It's uh, They are all, by the way, in the Lutheran hymnal, including the American Lutheran hymnal, and I wish they were in ours as well. From depths of woe, I cry to thee, Lord, hear me. I implore thee. Bend down thy gracious ear to me. My prayer let come before thee. If thou rememberst each misdeed, if each should have its rightful need, who may abide thy presence? Thy love and grace alone avail to blot out my transgression. The best and holiest deeds must fail to break sin's dread oppression. Before thee none can boasting stand, but all must fear thy strict demand and live alone by mercy. Therefore, my hope is in the Lord and not in mine own merit. It rests upon his faithful word to them of contrite spirit, that he is merciful and just. That is my comfort and my trust. His help I wait with patience. Though great our sins and sore our woes, His grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows. Our utmost need it soundeth. Our shepherd, good and true is he.
who will at last his Israel free from all their sins and sorrow. The Lutheran chorale became a mainstay in the Lutheran church. Luther believed in the power of music and introduced it into the church service. Um, because he believed that all church members ought to participate in everything. He involved them in congregational singing. Later on, the Catholic Church would discover that too and introduce it. Because the combination of music and of the word allows it to appeal to both sides of your brain. And when the congregation sings together, it becomes one body. The Lutheran Church employed musicians. Uh, it uh, employed organists. And in larger churches, it employed a minister of music, the so-called cantor, an institution that they uh, borrowed from the Jewish tradition. Uh, the organist was typically a church school teacher. Uh, the cantor was responsible for all musical life in the community. He would preside over a cantorai, those of you who know a little bit about the tradition of Bach uh, would know what that means. It is an organization of church members that are highly trained. They had voice training. And together with instruments, they perform music. A great Perhaps the greatest, in my opinion anyway, Johann Sebastian Bach, the greatest composer. Certainly one of the greatest. I started out that way. Started out as an, as a, as an organist, as a cantor. He became the Thomas cantor in the Thomas St. Thomas Church in Leipzig, which became a Reformation city. And he presided over the musical life. He and many others. George Frederick Handel, as an example. Some of you know him as a British composer. He was from Germany. Georg Friedrich Handel. And uh, he was a cantor as well. He was an organist. So he found his first employment in the church. The church offered opportunities for careers to talent. Where, talent. where opportunities abound, talent will grow. And that explains the great tradition of German music. Many of them found their beginnings, their training in the Lutheran Church. Some of them became secular serving at, at uh, royal courts like George Frederick Handel who emigrated to England 
and became the chief court uh, composer and musician. So that's something I, to me, is very important and very dear. Um, and uh, that's why I'm spending so much time on it. Uh, other implications, and I'm taking up too much time, uh, is uh, concerning work and work ethics. Lutherans and other Protestants considered all work of equal status. There was no hierarchy of work. Because work was your calling, your profession. We call it, the Germans have the term Beruf. Beruf comes from Berufung. That has a religious, spiritual connotation. God has called you to this. Wherever you are, God has called you to be. So it does not matter what nature of work you do, whether you're a mechanic or a carpenter or a blacksmith or one of these higher professions. They are not higher. They are all equal because they are equally a service unto God and they are done conscientiously because they are service to God. Whether people see it or not, you do work, good work. You do precision work. I think that is the secret to a long tradition, a long reputation that Germany has enjoyed for quality workmanship. German precision down to our own commercials, German engineering. So, so much about uh, work and work ethics. Well, that resulted in what? Prosperity. You look at the poor countries after the Reformation and down to today around the world. And you find Protestant countries in the lead. Protestant prosperity. In this way, the Protestants embraced the Renaissance principle. You do the best you can. Conscientiousness has a religious connotation. And it affected uh, the economy, not only in terms of prosperity, but, you know, it loosened. The old church had, uh, had established usury laws uh, which forbade taking interest when you lent money. Well, why would you lend money and risk all, losing it all, if somebody is irresponsible and does not repay his debt without any benefits in response? And the Protestant church lifted those usury laws. That was particularly true in the Reformed, the tradition 
um, capitalism has been linked by, soci by uh, sociologists primarily to the reformed brand of the church because they taught, uh, different from Luther, that prosperity or uh, success in business and otherwise was a sign that you were on the right track, that God blessed you. Um, it was the spirit of God, it was a sign that you were saved, that God blessed your work with prosperity. And I suppose from that derives today's heresy that is so widespread in America, the so-called prosperity gospel. That is um, an aspect of the Protestant legacy that does not agree with scripture, mind you. Now, on to other things. Uh, implications of the Protestant Reformation for the founding of the United States of America. The founders were not ignorant like most of our people today. They had studied their history, including the history of the Reformation, and uh, they applied the lessons they took with them from history when they established the Constitution, the foundations for this country's government. Government of the people, by the people. Separation of church and state, liberty of conscience and of religion are firmly established in the U.S. system. And as Thomas Jefferson wrote, wrote we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. These rights do not depend on the whims of government. They are God-given rights. The founding of this country realized that. Now I'd like to shift gear and look again at Luther. I have two pictures here before you. One is the early Luther, the monk who nailed the 95 Theses at the castle door, the professor. And the second one is the latest, the later Luther, who had filled out a bit. Um, and had been shaped and formed by the course of events. I think we are all affected by what happens around us, what our experiences are. And some of us are affected adversely so, and I think that sadly was the case with Martin Luther. When Luther returned to Wittenberg after the time at his Patmos, the Wartburg Castle, 
and faced uh, the radicals in Wittenberg. His view was the devil had mobilized his forces. He knew what time this was, the time of the end, the soon coming of Christ. And so Luther made the terrible mistakes, mistake that some of us are prone to as well, to generalize. Because the various, quote, radicals in Wittenberg were not really radicals by that term. Some of them were solid Bible-based Christians who had insight that went a little further than Luther had. Some demanded to abolish infant baptism because it was not biblical. Well, one of Luther's own associates, uh, Dr. Karlstadt, uh, argued that way. Look, Luther, we've got to go further. Go back to the sources. We're not done. Some of them advocated uh, keeping the seventh day Sabbath. We must keep the Ten Commandments as they were originally intended, not as they were later changed by the Roman Church. Um, others, to be true, to be sure, were of a different nature. Some of them advocated disobedience. We have only one Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. Though we are free, we don't have to obey our masters. So some were social revolutionaries, not only wanting to abolish government, but the old order. Some, as I mentioned, would attack churches. Some were rabble-rousers. Some claimed the doctrine of the Trinity was not correctly established in Christians, so they were anti-Trinitarian. Uh, they were spiritualists. They were apocalypticists who had dreams and went off in all kinds of tan tangents. The mistake, the tragic mistake that Luther made is that he felt those were all agents of the devil. He wanted to call a halt. He wanted stability. Because there was instability. And then followed wars. There was first the Knights War in 23. The Imperial German Knights had seen their standing in society erode. And this was the time for them to rise up. One of them was Ulrich von Hutten, who had defended Luther, as other humanists had too. That was, that was defeated. Then the peasants rose, starting in southern Germany in Swabia, the Swabian peasants uh, rose in rebellion. Some of them were inspired by Baptists, as they were called Anabaptists, those who baptize again. Actually, that's not what they believed. They believed in adult baptism, not in baptism twice. 
That was a misrepresentation. Uh, they practiced a um, kind of communism. They practiced um, equality between the sexes. Uh, women could baptize, women could preach among them. Uh, but others rebelled simply against their exploiters. Particularly, uh, they hated the church overlords, monastic institutions that control lar large, landhold large land holdings, and they were ruthlessly exploited, sometimes worse than by their secular lords. There was a tremendous amount of resentment against them, and if, if not hatred, against the church establishments. And at first, they basically called on Luther without saying it by issuing the 12 Articles of the Swabian Peasants. It was a program of reform, uh, and you could see Luther's name all written all over the place. And Luther understood that. Um, and Luther responded as if he had been called with uh, a publication on the 12 Articles of the Peasants. And he started by saying, we have no one to blame for this mischievous rebellion, because they were attacking monasteries, burning them to the ground. They were attacking towns. They were attacking the nobility in their castles. And they were snowballing, coming from southern Germany, across, uh, starting from the Swiss border, uh, going north, ever becoming larger and more mischievous, more violent. Luther blamed the aristocracy and the church leaders. We have no one to blame for this mischievous rebellion. If you were behaving like Christian people, we would not have to have this rebellion right now. And even if you defeat them, their cause is a righteous cause. I think this is often ignored when we look at this side of Luther. His call on the nobility to mend their ways and his call on the peasants to behave like real Christians and not commit violence. It is better to suffer wrong than to do wrong was down to no effect. The rebellion became stronger. It threatened the empire. And the empire, Protestant and Catholics, combined their forces to defeat the peasants. It was a terrible butchery, a terrible carnage after where they were defeated. And it left the peasantry in Germany um, very low until the 19th century when it, it gradually recovered. Uh, as the peasant war progressed and became ever more violent, Luther changed his tune. And he issued a tract against the accursed rebellion of the peasants. 
And that he called on the authorities to do their duty, to wield the sword for which it was given, for the purpose in which it was given to, to them. Smite, hack, and bring them low because they don't deserve otherwise. That was a black mark on the record of Luther. Uh, that is very, very sad. Uh, another aspect that we should touch upon brief, briefly is that increasingly Luther relied on the authorities. Um, you understand that he was alive because the elector of Saxony held his, had held his hand on him or over him. But as the Reformation spread across Germany, increasingly the governmental leaders, the dukes and counts, etc., that became Protestant, were in effect the, well, the Latin phrase that they used is the sumus episcopus, or in effect the bishop, because the Lutheran church was not, and still is not, a hierarchical church. Um, but they provided the funds for the sustenance of the Lutheran pastors. And they controlled the purse strings, so therefore they had influence in the church. And gradually, the Lutheran church developed into what became a state church. That process was complete by approximately... Uh, 1555, the religious um, peace of Augsburg. If you stopped outside uh, uh, the, uh, the sanctuary, there are some of those timelines uh, which indicate uh, this was at the tail end of what is officially called the Protestant Reformation. At that point, after religious wars in Germany, uh, where Protestantism almost was wiped out, um, they finally made a compromise. The emperor threw in the towel. He had tried as best as he might to eradicate this new heresy, and he had failed. Sometimes stabbed in the back by the pope, attacked by the French, attacked uh, in the east uh, by the Turks, and sometimes he discovered that the Pope was manipulating both to, to uh, contain the power of the emperor. He caved in. And they agreed on a rule, and sadly, Luther was dead by this time. Uh, so Melanchthon carried uh, the leadership. They agreed on a rule that whoever controls a government, a territory, he determines the faith of the people. This was a total sellout of Reformation principle at the end. So in that way, the Lutheran Reformation failed. Uh, because of all these developments, especially experience with the radical and with violence uh, committed by the radicals, Luther became a conservative. I've seen that in many people, including 
in this, our church, not this sanctuary. Now, of course, none, none of you are, in, are involved in this, I, I hope. Uh, but, uh, but there's a way that we are impacted by developments. Uh, off, the, off the track here. But uh, you may remember, well, he's still alive, Benedict, uh, the previous pope uh, that predated Francis. Um, he was a liberal professor at the University of Tübingen. When in 1968 the student rebellions happened and there was a lot of chaos, pandemonium, and that convinced him to become a conservative. And he became the chief uh, of the Roman institution of the protective faith, basically the modern inquisition. Luther, the conservative, the other Luther, uh, was marked by an inability to grow, starting with his return to Wittenberg on baptism, on the Sabbath, and other propositions as well. He closed himself to further truth. That is tragic. Um, other reformers uh, in Zurich, Switzerland, and in Geneva, Calvin, but there were other minor reformers around the empire, around Germany. And there was, because it was war, and, uh, and it, there was a real danger that Protestantism would be extinguished in war, there was a need for Protestants to close rank and move together. And some of those Protestant princes, like uh, Philip of Hesse, the ruler of Hesse, that principality in central Germany, was arranging a meeting for Luther and uh, other reformers, including Zwingli in Zurich, the main leader of that Reformation center, in uh, Marburg, um, which is also in Hesse, on, on his castle, or at his castle. He tried to mediate and find a way to bring them all together so they would agree. When their meeting started, Marburg debate, as it's called, uh, Luther was there, Zwingli was there, and other, others were say, sitting around the table. There was a tablecloth on the table. Luther lifted up the corner of the tablecloth where he sat, took out a piece of chalk, and wrote, Est, and covered it up again. One of the dividing uh, factors um, between the Zwinglian Reformation and, and the Lutheran Reformation was their view on communion. Luther still held on to the old view, to the Roman view of communion, where other reformers went further. Zwingli held that when the Bible says, when Christ says, this is my body, he meant this is a symbol of my body. In this case, Luther 
turned out to be a fundamentalist. Every time the topic came up, he would lift up the uh, tablecloth and point, est. It says est. It is. Now, if you can't believe when Christ says it himself, what can you believe? I don't accept you as a Christian. He was stubborn. He could not listen. He could not open his mind to new insights. The Marburg meeting failed. They were not united. Another example of many is his encounter with Erasmus. Now, I mentioned yesterday that uh, generally the accusation against Erasmus was that he laid the egg that Luther hatched. In other words, he prepared the way for the Reformation, which he did. Um, Erasmus was under a lot of pressure. He had not been challenged like Luther. Luther was challenged his back against the wall. He really had no choice to leave the Catholic Church was the only option, or else to lose his integrity. Erasmus never faced that kind of challenge. We stayed within the Catholic Church. Erasmus wanted Luther to open his eyes to some of his doctrines. He wanted him to see. And the big issue um, that he centered on was the doctrine of predestination. Luther, like Erasmus, had been brought up in the humanist Christian tradition. And they believed in, this was one of their cardinal beliefs, in the doctrine of free will. God had given us free will right in the beginning. Adam and Eve used that free will to their own doom. They chose wrongly. That was argued as the very foundation of the concept of sin. How can you blame a cat for behaving like a cat? That is in its DNA. There's no such thing as a bad cat for, for killing a bird or killing a mouse. Um, and so it is with human beings. No. Human beings, it's different. Human beings have the power of choice. That is why we have the concept of sin. Because we choose wrongly. Now, power of free will, free is a relative concept. Because we have no control. When we're in a boat and, uh, and uh, the sea uh, becomes rather wild and stormy, you know, we have no control over the waves and we have no control over the wind. But we do have a control over the rudder and over the sail. So it is not limitless within certain limits. Freedom always exists within certain limits. Not all people believe that. Because otherwise, it's license, not freedom. 
And that's what some of our modern-day liberals need to learn. Erasmus uh, was under a lot of pressure to move on the offensive against Luther. And so finally he did a clever thing. He thought he wrote a book about the freedom of the will. And Luther fell into the trap of thinking that actually Erasmus wanted to attack him. What Erasmus wanted to do is open his eyes. Your idea about predestination falls flat in the face of Christ's, of God's statement in Paul that he wants all to be saved. God is not a hypocrite. If he predestines you to salvation as the Calvinists taught, and Luther, unfortunately, as well, or to salvation, there's nothing you can do about it. God has already made the decision. God is a liar. Well, Luther saw it as attack, and he thought he needed to come out in the usual fashion and attack again. And that was not one of Luther's finest moments. Another thing that uh, I should mention, and that's much talked about in the 20th century and in this 21st century, now century, uh, Luther and his problem with the Jews. Luther believed, reading Paul's writings, that at the end of times, which he believed he was living in, that the Jews would return to the Messiah. The Jews would convert. There are many evangelicals, particularly, and there may be some Adventists as well, who believe that. The return of the Jews to Israel, uh, maybe soon establishment of the temple, would be a sign of Christ's soon coming. Luther believed that. And he thought, now was the time, and they surely would come now since the light of the gospel has been put on the table. And they would convert to Lutheranism, and that did not happen. And so Luther turned into the Jewish enemy. He wrote a number of tracts that were not pretty. He considered them the devil's agents. And later on, during the Third Reich, Lutherans, Lutheran pastors who supported Hitler, many of them did, would invoke Luther's invective against the, against the Jews. And the Nazis were happy for it, quoting him happily in their support to what they were doing in persecuting the Jews. That is another big black mark on Luther. It is tragic. Well, the aftermath of the Reformation, shift gears again, is, uh, I guess our time is running short, is uh, not very pretty either. 
The Reformation after 1555 in Germany was an uneasy peace. In other countries, it was already war. There were religious wars uh, in France. The French Protestants were called Huguenots. Um, there were battles between both sides. Religious war is the worst sort of war. Because there you can maim, you can slaughter, you can torture, and feel good about it because you're doing God's will. Uh, and that was the case with both sides, Protestants as well as Catholics. Uh, then you had religious wars in the Netherlands. It was also a war of national independence against the overlordship of the Spanish when uh, Charles V, the emperor of Luther's time, resigned. He was followed by Philip II, uh, who took a dim view of the growing Reformation in the Netherlands and sent his troops there to squelch it. And eventually it resulted, after, civil, after religious civil war, it re resulted in the independence of the Netherlands, uh, splitting the Netherlands from what is today Belgium, uh, which was completed by 1648. Um, there was religious conflict in, in England. And there was then the disastrous Thirty Years' War in Central Europe, where Central Europe was devastated. A thriving economy, a thriving middle class was destroyed and did not recover until the 19th century. Are those the fruits of the Protestant Reformation? I hope not. It was a sign of the failure of the Protestant Reformation. The end result would be what we call in history the Age of the Enlightenment. Centered around France uh, were educated people, the so-called philosophes in France, that looked at this miserable past and decided this is no way to run a society. And they became anti-religious in their attitude. There was rapidly growing secularism. The result of the failure of the churches to be Christian. And it played out in the French Revolution. Uh, sad. Oops, am I? Did I? Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, thank you. Now let's see whether I can do that again. Yes, all right. Uh, talking about the results of the Reformation, this map shows you a little bit about the consequences for common people. Uh, these arrows show where these red arrows show where Protestants were driven out. There was a flood of refugees. Huguenots, after the Edict of Nantes was res rescinded, the Edict of Toleration, 
people mostly educated and, and professional people left France for the Netherlands, for Britain, and for Central and Central Eastern Europe, all the way to Eastern Prussia, bringing with them their skills, their convictions, adding to the prosperity of the countries they fled to. England benefited tremendously from the influx of Huguenots who settled in England and converted English industry and commerce uh, in, a, in a better way. Uh, you see uh, arrows uh, from southern Europe fleeing, fleeing to Protestant countries. One, one case I'd like to briefly mention is the tragedy of Salzburg. The city of Mozart, Salzburg, was largely Protestant. When the government changed, and the government demanded that all be Catholic, they gave them a few hours to leave or else convert to Catholicism. This was midwinter. Yeah, it was a family that had a number of children. Some of them had just been born. How could you take a newly born baby into an insecure future? Moving with your horse and wagon, who knows where? The child might not survive. Infant mortality was rather high in those days anyway. The result was that many of those families split. The mother stayed behind with the infant child, while the father, true to his Protestant conviction, would emigrate with the older children. Untold tragedies in the wake the Protestant Reformation. This was no time of toleration, the toleration that Luther had promised in the beginning was no more. And I've chosen one statement by Pope Clement VIII uh, when for a while there was toleration in France. I am the most grieved and disconsolate person in the world to see the most cursed effect that I could imagine, whereby liberty of conscience is granted to everyone, which is the worst thing in the world. Unbelievable. Now, finally, I'd like to look at, uh, we're behind a little bit, I ask your apology, the problem of Christian unity. When you remove the old church authority, the Pope, who interprets scripture for you. The priests, the whole hierarchy is gone. How do you preserve unity when everyone follows his own conscience and his own separate interpretation of scripture? What happens to Christian unity? That was a problem confronting the reformers. And Philip Melanchthon and Erasmus were two of those humanists who thought they had found an answer. 
Uh, we should distinguish, said Erasmus, between adiaphora, the Greek term of meaning things indifferent, as opposed to fundamenta, fundamental things. Uh, when someone asks you, or tells you, you must do such and such. You must not eat any meat, otherwise you're not going to make it to heaven. Ask him or her, friend, tell me, is that what makes you a Christian? If it is not, it is adiaphora. The only thing that makes you a Christian is what? Accepting the gift of Christ. Becoming like him. Behaving in a Christian fashion, not in unchristian ways. That should be cause for excommunication. Do we do it? I don't think so. I think that was a good recipe. And as uh, Melanchthon put it, in essentials, unity. In differences, liberty. In all things, charity. Goodwill to all men. As John, who was a fine Christian, an early Martin Luther, who died for his faith, true to the Lord to the last second. It's an amazing story when you read about how he died. What a testimony to true faith. And he left us with this statement, love the truth, let others have their truth, and truth will prevail. <laughs>